Grab your Bibles with me, and uh, we're going to be going to Genesis chapter 2 this morning, is where we're going to start off, Genesis chapter 2. We're also going to spend some time in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, so you can kind of get both of those ready, and uh, we'll meet you there in just a little bit. If you're a guest with us today, we're so glad you're here. If we can help you or serve you in any way, please let us know. We would love to do that. Same thing for you that are online. We're glad that you're worshiping with us, and if we can do anything to serve you, please let us know there in the comments, and we'll try to help you out. Um, so we've been in this new series uh, in the, since the beginning of January called Destroying Strongholds and looking at different strongholds that exist in our lives, in our minds, in our culture, and how God's word can help us to tear those strongholds down, to tear down those false ways of thinking and replace them with the truth of God's word. And so today we want to look at another stronghold that's very prevalent um, in our day and age, um, destroying sexual immorality. Um, and so I want to start off with a little story um, from Dave Harvey's book, When Sinners Say I Do. This is a book that we use a lot uh, in our marriage counseling and when we were working with different uh, couples and so forth. And Dave starts one of his chapters with this story. He says this, Dave Harvey shares the following, uh, I don't remember much about my neighborhood Dairy Queen, except the sign. It hung provocatively above the counter, arresting the attention of every teenage boy in search of a blizzard. Some signs direct, others warn, still others prohibit certain actions, but the headline on this sign was a tractor beam for our attention. It read, concerning sex. Even gliding past it could melt the ice cream of any adolescent lad, but the headline was just an attention getter. The sign wasn't actually about sex at all. It was actually in just a list of etiquette for customers coming into the restaurant. Um, clever, right? He said, yet, somehow, every time I came in, I still thought that that sign might unlock some secret concerning sex. Maybe they've not added new information. Maybe I need to read it again, just in case I missed something. He said, now, now that I think about it, I don't think I'd actually want to learn about sex from a place where everything they sell is frozen. Um, but nonetheless, the point was made, the point was very clear, sex commands attention. Right? It just does. Um, and it commands attention, and it also commands um, nervousness, as I'm looking around at some of your faces this morning. It's okay. Take a deep breath. All right? um, we're not going X-rated this morning. We're just going to look at God's Word and see what God has to say, because he has some very important things to say on this topic. And our, it, not only does it command attention, but it, at this point, I would say, I think I could say pretty confidently that it has the full attention of our society. And they're saying a whole lot of things about it and a whole lot of things around it that are not right and not true and not helpful. And so today I want us to check a better source and get some better information on how we handle this topic of sexuality as followers of Christ. So let's see what God's word has to say about it. Here's kind of the main idea I want you to wrestle with this morning as we look at the scriptures. Number one, I'm not number one, but the first idea, sex is a gift from God, not God. Very important distinction. Sex is a gift from God. It's not God. All right, and let me show you what I mean by that. Let's start in Genesis chapter 2, very beginning of the book. Um, we're going to look at verses 24 and 25, but I'm going to start in verse 22 just to give us some context, Okay. So 22 says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. This is God's declaration, all right? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Point number one this morning is this. Sex is a gift. Right? This is not a common teaching. This is not something you're going to hear a lot of places. But the Bible is very clear that sex is a gift. And what we see here in the beginning, the very first part of the Bible, the very beginning of the whole story of creation, is that sex was actually God's idea. Did you catch that? Like, God's the one who said, hey, go do this. He created it. It's designed by him. And if God created it, then he's the one who has the right to say how it should function, what it should look like, because it was his plan, right? And if it was God's idea to start with, then we can also say with confidence that sex is not a bad thing. It's not a sinful thing, because nothing that God creates, nothing that comes from the hand of God is a sinful thing thing inherently. In fact, when God gave this to the first couple and then to all humanity in perpetuity, it was for a good and right purpose. Actually, for many good and right purposes. And I want to highlight a few of those for you this morning to show you how this is indeed a gift that God has given. So the first right and good purpose for sex we all know is procreation right? That's the first one pointed out in scripture. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? So the first reason, the first good reason that God gave it was to procreate, to make more humans. But there's a second reason right here in chapter 2, right on the heels of procreation, and that is intimacy. Did you see that he said that the two should become one flesh, that's a super important phrase, right? That idea of one flesh um, is not just a physical thing. It's in all essence of the couple and the two beings coming together as one. Physical, emotional, spiritual, that they are becoming one being, one entity in the eyes of the Lord. And because of that, God designed sex to be this act that creates a special bond between two people. A bond that is more deep and more intimate than any other human relationship. And that's why God, when he designed it, gave this gift specifically for marriage. The reason that we're not called, we're not told that this is okay anywhere else is because of this bond that it creates. And he wants that bond specifically to be for the closest human relationship that you can experience on earth, which is that of a husband and a wife. So he gave them this great gift of intimacy wrapped in the act of sex so that the two could become one flesh in every way. He goes on here in the scripture and he says, they came together and they were naked and they were not ashamed. That's such an important phrase as well and I think an interesting phrase again in our day and age that when God first created sex in its perfect gift form, it was meant to have no shame. No fear, just perfectly known intimacy between two people. And yet, everywhere I look today, I feel like 
Sex is rampant with fear and shame and guilt and struggle. And that's because it's being used outside of the design in which God created it. In God's design, in God's world, it is perfect gift. No shame, no fear, just perfect and pure intimacy between a husband and a wife. And so because of this, we see here that sex is a gift. It's not gross. And I think that's been a message from the church for far too long. I grew up in the church. I've been in church my whole life. Growing up as a kid, they never used that word, but the teaching on sex oftentimes was no, 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 stop, 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 don't, 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 without any further explanation of the gift that it is in marriage. And it starts to give this idea that sex is gross, push it away, or other way that that happens is whether it be through our own decision or someone else's decision against us, we experience sex in a way for the first time that is hurtful and shameful, and it makes it feel gross, even though that's not how God ever intended it to feel. You see, God didn't make sex gross. Sin is what makes sex gross sometimes. In God's hands, in God's design, it's a gift. The church needs to do a better job of teaching it as such. A couple other ways that it's a gift, specifically in marriage. Let me read you this from Proverbs chapter 5. Listen to this. Verse 18 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice, keyword, rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Now, what I just read there, that's not GQ, right? That's not Cosmo. Like, that's in the Bible, people, right? And that's not the only place. There's lots of scriptures in God's word that talks about the joy that couples are to experience in the act of sex when it's done in marriage, There's a whole book called The Song of Solomon that goes into great detail about how this is a joy and a gift for married couples. But on the backside of that, look what it says there at the end of verse 20. He says, why should you be with forbidden women or with an adulteress? Again, making clear that the design that God has for this joy of sex is in the marriage relationship, not with anyone else before or during marriage. Other verses that make it very clear that sex outside of marriage is not in God's design, Exodus 20, 14, part of the Ten Commandments that made the big list, right? You shall not commit adultery. Again, in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So he makes clear that there's a specific design. It's in marriage between two people, husband and wife, not anything else. Anything outside of that is sinful because it's not the way God designed it to work. Now, our society would take that teaching, what I just expressed. First of all, they would be very upset about it. And secondly, they would push back and say, you see, you see, God's just trying to deprive you. He's trying to steal from you. 
There's this great physical act that you can have in your life, and you're, you have the ability to do it. There's no one that can stop you, and God's trying to steal something from you when he says you can't. But I think if we look at the totality of God's word and look at the heart of who God is, we see that God's not trying to steal anything from you. He's not trying to deprive you of anything. He's trying to help you. He's trying to love you. He's trying to lead you to experience this great gift of his in a way that's actually going to be beneficial and joyful for your life and not harmful instead. That's a good God. The fourth way that sex is a gift, specifically in marriage, is that it's a safeguard from sin. It's a safeguard from other sexual sin. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 7. It says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. This is exactly why Paul says later on that it's better to marry than to burn with desires, right? Like, like literally, sex is God's fire protection for your life in marriage, right? It's to keep those desires that you have, which are natural and are part of who you are because God created you for that, to help you keep them in the right place and not take them to the wrong place. And that's a gift. So as we look through God's Word, we see that Sex was designed by God for a gift for married couples. It's not gross, but also it's not God. And this is where our society gets it most wrong today. Our culture has taken sex and exalted it to pin ultimate status. It is the most important thing, right? It is the driver of everything else of identity, of power, of freedom, of fulfillment, of fun, and the list goes on and on, and it all links back to, in their minds, sex. In our world today, sex is seen as God, as the most worthy, highest thing to go after. And I think what's interesting is we oftentimes will think that that's unique to us. Like, this this is a new thing in culture. It's just kind of like this is but it's not at all. This has been something that's been revolving through human history forever. Listen to this all the way back, first century, 2,000 years ago. Paul writes these words to the Roman church. Romans 1, 24, he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged, here it is, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. I don't think a more, I don't think a better word could be spoken or written over our culture today than what Paul wrote to the Romans 2,000 years ago. They have exchanged the truth about God, who he is, what he designed, how he created it, for a lie. that you can be fulfilled outside of God's design for sex. That God's not God, sex is God, and that's what we need to be pursuing. That's the lie. And as a whole, our world is buying it hook, line, and sinker. 
But then he goes on and it says they worship and serve the creator, the creation, the created act in this case, rather than the creator God. Sometimes I say it like this, we've taken a good thing and we've made it into a God thing. And that's a really bad thing. Anytime we take the good gift that God has given and we exalt it above him and make it more important than he is, we've got it all out of balance. And it messes things up big time. Sex was designed to be an act of worship, not an object of worship. It's a gift. It's not gross, but it's definitely not God. This past week, I was on the phone, I was talking to my mom, and, and they, she was telling me about a problem that they were having in their house with their water softener. So they had this water softener installed, I don't know, a few months ago or a little while ago, and it didn't seem like it was working. Like the, the salt level wasn't going down, and the water didn't seem like it was treated like it should be, and they're like, it's something just not right. So they call somebody in to come look at it, and he comes in, he walks in, he looks at the back of the, the water softener, he says, oh yeah, right away he knew, oh yeah, this, it's never going to work like this. He says, you've got your input and your output hoses flipped. And so they're going into the wrong valves. And so he flipped the hoses back, got it all corrected, and it started working like a charm, no problem. Well, come to find out, the person who originally installed the water softener was used to installing a different brand of water softener, a different type of water softener, I guess, where the controls are reversed from this one. But he thought, oh, no big deal. It's just a water softener, right? So I know how to do this. I don't need to check the instructions. I don't need to check the manual. I, I, I can figure this out. So he just hooks it up the way that he thought it was supposed to work. But it didn't work. Because the way in which he was trying to hook it up and use it was contrary to the design of the actual product. And so this appliance that was supposed to be helpful and good and all these great things for my parents actually became a pain and a hindrance and an issue because it was used contrary to the design. That's what we're experiencing right now in our world when it comes to sex. The reason it has so many problems surrounding it is because the majority of the time people are using it contrary to the design for which God has given. But if we'll learn, if we'll humble ourselves, if we'll embrace God's perfect design for sex, it can be one of the greatest gifts that you ever get to experience with another human on this earth and before the Lord. He wants it that for you. He wants it to be a good and perfect gift. But it has to be in his way. So here, a right view of sex starts with God and his design, not me and my desires. That's where we're inclined to start, right? That's where we naturally want to start is me, my thoughts, my desires, my wants, and we let that drive everything. But that's reversed. We have to start with God and his design because he's the one who created it. So, first thing, sex is a gift got to have that foundation before you can understand anything else that the Bible says about it. Number two, point number two today is simply this, flee sexual immorality. This is straight out of Scripture. This is Paul's words to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So flip over there. If you've got your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
I'm going to read kind of a lengthy section here of Scripture, and I'll go back and I'll break it apart for you and show you Paul's argument and Paul's uh, explanation here of how to deal with sexual immorality. So, 1 Corinthians 6, start in verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, there's our key phrase here, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Then he keeps going. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Here's the command. Flee from sexual immorality. Verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So that's a long section here as Paul is walking us through why we should flee sexual immorality. But before I even jump into that, let me give you some background here for Corinthians, all right? So this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And Corinth was known as a very sinful, very promiscuous city. In fact, uh, Warren Wiersbe in his commentary writes this. He says, there was a great deal of sexual laxness in the city of Corinth. It was a permissive society with a philosophy, philosophy similar to that which the world has today. Sex is a normal physical function, so why not use it as you please? Paul pointed out that the God created sex when he made the first man and the first woman, and therefore he has the right to tell us how to use it. The Bible is the owner's manual, and it must be obeyed. So Paul here is trying to correct this issue there in the Corinthian church and in their city and very much similar to our own society today. So I think this applies directly for us as well. And the first term that I want to look at there is when he talks about the sexually immoral. The Greek word there for sexually immoral is porneia. And what's interesting about this word is it's not talking about any one specific sexual sin. It's actually like the category of sexual sin. So all of the sexual sins are included underneath the category of sexually immoral. So that could be lust, that could be uh, fornication, that could be adultery, that could be, uh, you know, the less common deviances like orgies or homosexuality or pedophilia or bestiality. All these things are addressed throughout the Bible, and they all fall in this category of porneia, sexually immoral. And what's interesting to me is when Paul lists this list of sins— he puts that one in there right along all these other ones. 
right? So it's, it's not like he's calling it out separate. He's just saying, like, here's a big list of things that are against the Lord and against his design, and one of them is this. And he gets, long, he gets to the end of his long list, and he says, and so were some of you. This list of sins that I just laid out, some of you, this was your life. This is who you were. But what I love about it is his language there is past tense, right? This is what some of you were. In other words, B.C., before Christ, this is who you were. But, one of the most important words in all the Bible, over and over again, but, he says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In other words, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were saved from all of that sin and it was washed away and you were given a new life and a new future and a new heart and a new mind in Christ. That's no longer who you are. And Paul's admonition to them basically is this, so stop living like that and live like you were made to in Christ. Put that behind you, he says. And then he goes on to explain why sexual immorality in particular is problematic. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And then he says, I will not be dominated, or some of your translations might say enslaved. I think that's even a better word. I will not be enslaved by anything. Again, you see, good things become bad things or hurtful things, harmful things, when they start to enslave us. when they start to be what is driving and calling the shots, when they become the thing that's most important that we're bowing down to and they replace God on the throne of our hearts, now we have a problem. And he gives an example here before he even gets to sexual immorality. I think it's interesting. He uses this parallel and he talks about food. Right? Just, it seems kind of out of place at first, but he's actually using it like an illustration. Right? He says, listen, the food was made for stomach, and the stomach was made for food, but in the end, it's all getting destroyed, right? In other words, he's saying, listen, food is not eternal. Food is temporal. We need it here for this life to survive, yes, but once we get to heaven, once we're past that and we're in eternity with the Lord, forget about it. You don't have to have that anymore. And because it's temporal and it's not eternal, it cannot be God. It cannot be the most important thing. It can't be penultimate. It can't be what we worship if it's just temporal here for this life. But how often do we see ourselves or others worshiping food? I mean, we're not like bowing down before the dinner table or anything. I'm not saying that. But like, how often do we obsess over and like pursue and overeat and have to have, like, food can very much become something that we put higher than it should be. And then he uses that illustration to weave into now the sexual discussion where he says, likewise, your bodies are also temporal, right? Your bodies are for the Lord, and the Lord is for your bodies. And he says, listen, sex, therefore, is not eternal. Sex is temporal. It's a great gift for this life. But once you move on, there's no more of that. And if it's temporal, if it's not eternal, then again, it can't be God, and it's not something that we should be worshiping. You see, sexual immorality 
elevates sex to the level of God. Because when we engage in it, we're basically saying, this is more important, this is more valuable, this is more worthy of my life than God is because I want to do that rather than what he has said is good and right. And so I'm making it into a God. Paul goes on, he says, in contrast, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? In other words, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are now joined with Christ. The Bible has all this language about us being part of the body of Christ, that we're joined to him as one. And we are now holy and destined for eternity and for resurrection with him. Like There's a greater calling, there's a greater purpose that we are set towards as members of the body of Christ, and sexual immorality is contrary to all of that. Because it enslaves me to temporal desires here on this earth rather than enslaving myself to Christ and his eternal purposes in my life. He goes on. He says, do you not understand that when you engage in sexual immorality that you're giving your body to be one with her, prostitute in this case, when in reality you're supposed to be one in spirit with him, Jesus Christ. And so he's kind of drawing this juxtaposition of giving yourself to one versus giving yourself to the other. And he draws all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, which we just read earlier, right? And he quotes and he says that the two shall become one flesh. Because again, God has given sex as this act that creates this special, sacred, intimate bond between two people. And when we engage in that act with somebody who's not our spouse, We are forging that bond, but we're forging it with someone else in sin. And that bond then is contrary to the spiritual bond that we're supposed to have through the Holy Spirit with Christ himself. And so Paul's conclusion is very simple. Verse 18, right? Flee sexual immorality. Flee. Like, run. Right? Don't even let it hang around. Don't let it be, you know, kind of over in the shadows. Like, run away from sexual immorality is what Paul says. Don't even let the temptation hang out. And then he has this very curious line here that I read so many commentaries because it's a very kind of, it's hard to understand and it's very debated on what this means. But he says this, he says, every other sin is outside the body. And yet, Sexual sin is against one's own body. So what does that mean? Here's the best I can decipher it. We do know from the rest of Scripture that all sin, we've talked about this before here at Harvest, all sin is equally problematic and sinful when it comes to separating us from God. Right? There isn't one sin that's worse than the others. All sin, no matter how big or small we think it is, separates us from God, and it needs forgiveness, and it needs the blood of Jesus to cover it, and we need repentance to get out of it. All, right? all sin is equal in the sense of it all is sin before God. But here, Paul seems to, to elevate or kind of put a twist here on sexual sin, and it's because of, he's tying it back to this reference here in Genesis that two become one flesh. Because of this special, intimate bond that's created in sex, 
sexual sin has more severe consequences for our lives, for our physical, emotional, spiritual beings, because it destroys us from the inside out. It's not that it's more sinful than other things, but the effects, the consequences of it on our lives is greater than any other sin is what he's saying. And then he ties it here to the end, and he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Not your own. You are not, your body is no, when you come to follow Jesus, your body is no longer your own. It now belongs to God. It's the temple of his Holy Spirit, and therefore you are meant to glorify God in your body. As believers, we belong to Christ, and our bodies are meant for his glory, not our own. And sexual immorality makes my body no longer a temple of God, but a temple of self. Where all I'm running after is satisfying my own selfish desires and self-gratification, and I'm not trying to glorify God at all. Because it's about me. Many of you have heard my salvation testimony before, whether it be in a sermon or step one or small group or wherever. But there's a portion of my, what I would call my sanctification testimony that I share, but I share less often. But it applies really well to this today, and so I want to I share that with you. When Courtney and I first married, I had a lust and porn problem that had been years in the making. I remember the first time I was ever exposed to illicit materials was five years old on the school bus by some older students. By the time I was a little bit older, my mom had a boyfriend who had a stack of magazines underneath the bathroom counter that I had access to. That led to me then finding ways to get around and use the cable access and the internet access at my dad's house to look at more and more lustful images until I finally got to college and it was a full-blown issue for me. Now, hardly anybody else knew. Right? It was a very secret sin that I kept hidden away from most people, but nonetheless, it was wrecking havoc in my life and in my heart. And if you know my salvation testimony, you know that in college, I had kind of this spiritual awakening moment with God where he came in and just kind of cleaned house on my life and my heart and started changing everything and calling me back to him and calling me deeper into Christ. But no matter what he changed, no matter what he did, no matter what got better, it seemed like this issue, this particular sin just kept holding on and holding on and holding on, and I just couldn't shake it. It had a unique, powerful grip on me like no other sin that I'd ever experienced. So Courtney and I get married, and she doesn't know anything about it. But within a couple of months, maybe weeks, God exposed it to her. And my sin devastated her. It put a huge strain on our marriage. For years, because she graciously and faithfully walked with me through that sin as it took me several more years before I really got freedom from it. I'd broken her trust, and I'd broken what was supposed to be an exclusive bond between me and her. Even 
even now, 16 years later, we're still feeling and experiencing the consequences of my sin from time to time. And even to this day, personally, my mind is still haunted by this stronghold that I have to daily tear down with the power of God's word and not let it build back up and try to reign in my life again. And what's been interesting, or not interesting, what's been sad is that throughout the last 16 years of ministry, we have sat in the counseling room with person after person, and couple after couple, they have the exact same story. That they are still suffering the consequences of sexual sin in their lives or in their marriage years and even decades after it happened. Whether it was lust or fornication or adultery or abuse or sometimes it wasn't even their fault. Sometimes it was sexual sin done against them, but they are still suffering the consequences because sexual sin is unlike any other sin and that it's not just against God, it's not just against others, it's against your own body. And it sticks with you. And don't hear me wrong this morning. Our Savior is bigger than all of that. And he can and he does give freedom from it. But even when he sets us free, as I can testify, there are still consequences that you suffer as a result of your choices. That's what Paul's talking about right here. That's why sexual immorality is such a big deal, as Paul discusses it here in the scripture. It hijacks your heart. That's the best way I can describe it to you. Sexual immorality hijacks your heart And it gets you to love and worship temporal pleasure instead of the eternal God. In other words, sex isn't just physical, it's spiritual. It is a worship issue. But that's the really great thing about it. It's a worship issue. And so what we need to do to correct it, what we need to do to get victory and freedom over it, is not the latest psychological philosophy or opinion. It is simply to get our hearts to rightly worship Jesus Christ. If we'll get our worship in the right place, our sexuality will follow. Victory only comes when I love and worship Jesus more than my sexual sin. The only way you'll get victory in this is to love and worship Jesus more than the sin that entangles you. So with that in mind, let's jump here to the last point, number three, destroy sexual immorality. I'm going to give you four steps for this, four things that I have found helpful myself that we've counseled others with that I believe Scripture backs up to destroy this sin if you're struggling with this. And maybe a better way I would even phrase that is to just pursue purity in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. 
So here are the four steps. Number one, it always starts here. If you haven't caught on for the last couple of weeks, it always starts with this one. Confess sin. You can't deal with the sin in your life until you confess it before the Lord. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have to start with confession. Confession leads to forgiveness, and forgiveness leads to freedom. That's the gospel, right? The gospel starts with me admitting and seeing and confessing that, yes, God, I am a sinner. And I have this sin that I can't fix and I can't control, and it gets me every time. And the only way I'm going to beat it is if you help. God, I need you because I can't fix this. And God, in his gracious, loving kindness towards us, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come for sinners just like us. To say, I'm going to live a perfect and sinless life so I can go to the cross and die for your sin instead. I'm going to take all of your sin, all the weight, all the guilt, all the shame, all the punishment. I'm going to put it on myself, and I'm going to pay the price for you so you can be set free, so you can be forgiven if you'll believe in me. And he went into the grave, and then three days later, he rose back to life in resurrection power, conquering sin, conquering death, bringing in forgiveness and freedom for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. So the first step to conquering, to destroying sexual immorality in your life is to confess it as a sin and ask Christ to save you from it. But there's additional things we can do to help ourselves get free from the hold that it has on our lives in conjunction with the Spirit. Number two, set up fences. Set up fences. Romans 13, 14 says this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's an important phrase. Put on no provision for the flesh. Don't give the flesh, don't give temptation any opportunity to get you. And the way we do that is we put up fences to keep ourselves away from things that are going to tempt us into sin. So let me give you some examples of fences that I've used, that I've instructed others to use for this, uh, this area of sexual immorality. Number one, internet blockers. Right? They're not just for kids. <laughs> They're for us too. Put them on your phones, put them on your laptops, put them on your tablets, put it on anything that has internet, and give somebody else the passcode. All right? Don't give yourself an opportunity to even get around it. Let somebody else set it up. Let them have the passcode. Keep that up so that you're not even tempted with information or with stuff that should come across your eyes uh, that would come across your eyes that shouldn't. It's just a fence. It's just helpful. Number two, pre-screen your media. Don't just go grab the newest shows that shows up in your Netflix. Don't just go watch whatever movie people are talking about on Facebook. Look it up. Do a little legwork. Look and see, does this have content in it that is going to be tempting to me? This is something that I should not be seeing. One website that we use a lot is kidsinmind.com. Is that right? Yes. Kidsinmind.com. Right? It gives a review for every movie that comes out. gives you all the details of exactly what's in there and what's not in there and what you should or shouldn't be watching. Common Sense Media is another one that people like to use, commonsensemedia.com. 
Shoot, IMDb even has it in their app now. They have a parental guide where you can just scroll down and it tells you right there what's included. So pre-screen your media and don't let things come in front of your eyes that shouldn't be there. Number three, never be alone with the opposite sex. Unless you're married. Okay, spouse is good. Otherwise, no. If you're married, don't take meetings, don't take lunches, don't take coffees with somebody of the opposite sex that's not your spouse. It's, you're just setting yourself up for an opportunity for something to go the wrong direction. If you're single, hang out in groups, do stuff in big company. Like, I'm just telling you, like, 11 o'clock at night, on the couch, in the dark, watching a movie, you're just setting yourself up. I'm just being honest, right? Like, I've been there. It's just not going to turn out good. All right? So don't be alone with the opposite sex unless you're married and it's your spouse. Number four, no unaccounted for time. This kind of goes together. No unaccounted for time. If you're married, your spouse should, should know where you're at and what you're doing at all times. There should be no secret time where nobody knows where you're at or what you're doing. You're just setting yourself up for failure, right? Cordy and I, we both have phones that can see each other at all times. She can see my location. I can see her location. No secrets. If you're not married, have some guys. Have some girls that you're friends with. Like, be that person for you. Like, they know where you're at and what you're doing, so you're not just off on your own where you can get yourself in trouble. Number five, give a spouse or a friend, if you don't have a spouse, full access to your devices and accounts. If you're married, your spouse should have your code to your phone. They should have the passwords to your email, to your social media, to all of it. They should be able to check any of it anytime they want without you getting bent out of shape about it. Because there's no secrets, right? We have nothing to hide. We shouldn't. And this is a way to keep us accountable. Again, if you're not married, have a friend, somebody that you're close with, somebody that you trust, not just anybody, right? Like you don't want anybody just getting through your stuff. But like somebody you trust that has access, that knows what you're doing and how you're doing it. And then lastly, number six, Use God-given protection in marriage. Again, if you're married, he's given you sex as fire protection, okay? Like, use it to keep yourself from being tempted in other ways to sexual immorality. And there's others I could list, but these are some of the top ones that we use that we talk to people about that seem to be most helpful. So set up fences is number two. Number three, step number three, seek accountability. Seek accountability with a trusted partner. Somebody that you know, that you can trust. They're not going to tell everybody else your business. They're not going to be gabbing to people. They're not going to judge you. Like, they're just going to come alongside you and love you and pray with you and walk with you through whatever it is you're struggling with. If you're here at Harvest and you're in a small group, that's a great place to start. <laughs> You've already got a built-in group of people, uh, men or women, that can be that for you. Maybe it's the whole group. Maybe it's just one or two. That's fine, whatever. But like, get somebody who you can be accountable to. And two things about accountability. Number one, you need somebody who's going to tell you the truth. Pick, don't just pick anybody. Pick somebody who's going to tell you the truth about your sin. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You need a friend who's going to lovingly and faithfully wound you when you need it. They're going to tell you the truth even when it hurts. And you need to give them permission to do so. Like, listen, tell me when I'm being an idiot. Okay, like just, like, I need to hear that. And give them permission to speak into that in your life. 
Second part of accountability is be transparent. It's not going to work if you're not transparent and truthful with the other person. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It's always interesting that James tells us to confess to one another because we know that we can't forgive one another's sins. Only Jesus can do that. So why do we confess? We confess because once I confess it to you, it's like grabbing my sin and yanking it out into the light. Because as long as sin is able to hide in the darkness and is able to hide in the private areas, then it can grow and it can continue to, to have its way with you. But once you pull it into the light, once somebody else knows about it, once it's exposed, now God can go to work on that. Now the Holy Spirit can start to work on that issue through you and through your heart and through your friend, and it no longer can grow and have the strength that it used to have in the darkness. So get somebody who's going to tell you the truth and be transparent. That's accountability. Number four, the last step is simply this. Love Jesus more. All the other steps are great and good, and, but if you don't have, I can just tell you from personal experience, if you don't have this one, you're still going to fail. You're still going to fall back in. It's still going to rear its ugly head again because at the end of the day, it's all about worship. Who do you love more? Who do you worship more, your sin or Jesus? Verses, here we go. Psalm 4-7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. I love that verse. There is no joy, there is no pleasure that this world has to offer that is greater than the joy and the pleasure that we have in Jesus Christ. We need to stop running to all the wrong things to fill our cup when all we need is Jesus to do that. So love him more. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Only Christ can truly fulfill you in your life, not only now, but all throughout eternity. He's the greatest pleasure. He's the greatest joy that we can have forever and ever. And then lastly, Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Friends, the only way, the only way to destroy the stronghold of sexual immorality is to love Jesus more than I love my sin. When Christ becomes the greatest desire, when Christ becomes the source of my strength and everything that I'm running after, sexual immorality and every other sin for that matter will lose all appeal. And it will just fall away because my worship is in the right place. Don't be slaves to sex. Be slaves to Christ. Enjoy the gift, but worship God. Don't worship sex. Don't worship anything else. Enjoy the great gift that God's given, but worship God and God alone. That's what he calls us to.
Sex is a gift from God, not God. And we need to tr- quit treating it as such. Now listen, just on a real personal level, I'm not sure where you're at today with this. I don't, most of you, I don't know you personally. I definitely, I definitely don't know this deep part of your life. But if this is you, if your heart and your mind are currently ruled by sex in whatever form, whether that be sex as God or sex as gross or whatever, like if this is you, if sexual immorality is ruling your life, I want you to know that there is a way out. I said it earlier, but I just want to make very, very clear, this does not have to be your story anymore. The path to hope, the path to healing, starts and ends with Jesus. If you'll turn to him, if you'll love him more than the sin, I promise you, he will deliver you from all sexual immorality. You can live in freedom. And he is so much better than anything else that you're going to find in here. And he is all that you need today. Stand with me. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song of response to the Lord and just commit that idea back to him this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we we thank you, God, once again for the power of your word. Lord, we have waded into a very sensitive and heavy topic this morning, but we have done so because we believe your word. We believe your grace is powerful enough to give us hope and to give us healing in this area. So Lord, right now we are praying that by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, Lord, open our eyes to the truth. Lord, show us the truth about our sexual sin and give us hearts of repentance. Lord, draw us to you. Draw us to Jesus. Help us to love and worship him more than anything else in this life. Deliver us today from this stronghold, Lord. Give us victory that's found only in you. Lord, you, you are all that we want. You are all that we need. So we pray all of this in Christ's name.